Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling open Hollywood's crypt to review My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, so um, this is this is one of the standout anime animated anime. It's, it's it's anime. It is an anime. Yeah, it is very much an anime. It is a standout anime animated film from Studio Ghibli. It originally came out in Japan in 1988, and was actually redubbed a couple of times. I think in 1993. And then the version I watched, the most recent one, was redubbed in 2006. Yep. Yeah. With the Fanning sisters. That's right. Dakota Fanning and Elle Fanning in what had to have been Elle Fanning's first role. Yeah, I think she was. So the sisters in the film are fairly close to the Fanning sisters' ages when they first recorded it. So we're getting ahead of ourselves. We should read the synopsis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the synopsis we have, this acclaimed animated tale follows schoolgirl Satsuki and her younger sister Mei as they settle into an old country house with their father and wait for their mother to recover from an illness in an area hospital. As the sisters explore their new home, they encounter befriendful playful spirit and befriend playful spirits in their house and the nearby forest, most notably the mysterious creature known as Totoro. I love this movie. I, I know you love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this has been like something that's come up again and again and again through our friendship, how much you love this movie. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie, though I did say that at a party recently I was at. But I will say that it's probably the most important movie in my life. Like if I was to meet someone at a cocktail party and they were like, explain who you are as a person using a movie, I would use my neighbor Totoro, I think. Okay. Well, there you go. So that's a perfect lens for uh, any anybody, well, everybody who's a new listener, since this is our first episode, into learning a little more about yourself. I think it has everything that defines who I am as a person. You've got sisterhood, you've got love of nature, and you've got a sense of magic. So that's me in a nutshell. So I feel so bad to admit this was actually my first time watching the movie. I know that. I also know that because I was with your wife when she first saw it. Um, <laughs> and I thought you were there too, but that is not correct. Um, so this was your very first time seeing it. That's right. Like I, I've been a fan of Studio Ghibli for sure, but I always leaned more towards like Princess Mononoke or Spirited Away, Howl's Moving mm -hmm. Castle. And mm -hmm. like, despite the fact that that Totoro is like one of the key, if if not the key, Studio Ghibli movie. I hadn't seen it. Well, and I think a, for a lot of people, if you haven't seen it as a kid, it's a very odd movie to watch as an adult because it's very childlike and it's it, it's not childish, but I would say it's very innocent. Yeah. So I'd say if you're getting into a first time Ghibli watch. Princess Mononoke, which is very dark and very intense, makes sense. But My Neighbor Totoro is very innocent and very childlike. I would agree. I mean, it's it, the, the whole time from the opening theme song, I'm just sitting here thinking, this movie is so nice. Mm -hmm. Like, it's nice. It's it's pure. It's innocent. It's wonderful. And it's it's very low stakes. Yeah. At least watching it as an adult. It, 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 like, it... It's a very low stakes movie, but I like that. It was it was relaxing. I find it interesting that you think it's low stakes when the younger sister goes missing at the end of the film. Well, right. But so, okay, so to get into that, like that is the only part of the movie that does have like any real issue. Like like it has stakes, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have tension. I'm, I was never worried that something bad huh. was going to have happened to May. There's even like so so May wanders off and gets lost and that's that's the core climactic conflict and mm -hmm. Satsuki has to, you know, run all over the county finding her. But even when like her neighbors find a little girl's shoe in the well and they're they're fishing through the well in the bot they're they're fishing for a body in the lake. 
Like, I never... I feel like it was never presented as a real tense moment. At least I never got that. There's there's what happens, and then there's the way it happens. What happens mm. is, is tense, but the way it mm-hmm. happened... Like, we only find out that they're even dredging the lake when satsuki comes running up she sees the sh- the sandal and goes that's not maze and keeps running hmm. so like it's not bad by any means but all of their misadventures with the forest spirits and with the king totoro and and with each other it was just soft and, and soft in a good way yeah well and so i would say there's a whole other thing of how the mom is sick and the the mother is sick with tuberculosis because Hio Miyazaki, the director's mother, also is sick with tuberculosis. So this right. is kind of um, his way of dealing with his childhood. But the mom is the way that we understand the mother's illness is very much through Mei and Satsuki's eyes. So we don't really we never really see how sick she is until the moment where Mei and Satsuki get in an argument and Satsuki whirls on Mei and says, do you want our mother to die? She's really sick, Mei. She could die. Do you want that? And that's, I think, for me, the most tense point in the film. But you're right. Other, other than that moment where the catalyst, that's the catalyst of Mei running away to try and find her mother, that's the most tense moment in the film. And sure. beyond that, there's not a whole lot of ratcheted up drama. Princess Mononoke is, there's a whole war going on. Howl's Moving Castle, there's a curse. And this, I think, is the most innocent and light of Miyazaki's films. I, I, think, I think you're right. The, the, the only period in the movie where there is actual conflict between Satsuki and Mei, like that is the low point of the movie. And I think that actually highlights what an amazing relationship they have throughout the rest of the movie. I was watching mm-hmm. these two and just and just overjoyed and and like to 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 go to the start of the movie when they um find the new house they're going to live in and they're running around exploring from the moment they jump out of their dad's car it's just nothing but sweet rambunctious childlike wonder and energy and you know satsuki's bouncing around doing cartwheels and it's it it's so nice it's so sweet and fun and adorable may is such a cute baby sister to Satsuki and the Mm -hmm. way she's like repeating every word and, and, and checking for uh, checking parts of the house as soon as Satsuki is done and just following her around like a little baby duck. Opening the same exact closet doors right after Satsuki had just closed them. Satsuki opens the door, not in here, closes it. May opens it, not in here, closes it. Right. They just, they're so fun to watch and and you know as an older brother and I know as an older sister that older siblings can kind of set the tone for younger siblings like okay I'm gonna show my younger sibling how to deal with the situation or how to tonally respond to the situation I think Satsuki does that in a very realistic way yeah I agree it's they they kind of have to be the ages they are. Like they Satsuki and May have to be as young as they are for this to work in the right. the the nice soft way we've been talking about. Right. So I think Satsuki is like nine and May's probably what four? Yeah, Three, that's four? that's what I was pegging him as. Yeah. Which is so crazy that a four year old is like, "Yep, I'm gonna go on my own adventures," but her dad is also like so. He's helpful and thoughtful, but he also lets his daughters be their own people in a way that I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so the whole time I'm watching it, I was trying to pinpoint it in time. I I assume it's the Japanese countryside in the early 80s. Like we see we see there's a radio we never see a TV, uh-huh. but that might just be a function of the Kazakabe house, uh, Kuzakabe house. I think the the neighbor boy has a TV. Okay. So, yeah. So I was looking at, at in the time frame and 
you're in a, a rural area. It's it's nearly thirty years ago. The, the neighborhood felt a lot safer, like worldwide. Mm-hmm. And so I I bought that May would be just be allowed to you know run around the house and surrounding area while Dad was working during the day. That never struck me as too out of place. Mm-hmm. It raises an interesting question, though, and, and I'd love to get your take on this because we have such different viewpoints about the movie in different contexts we watched it in. So magic and the adventures that May and later May and Satsuki go on, I felt like there was such an opportunity for it all to be imaginary. That's so interesting. So you've never, you thought it could be literal, it could be imagination? Yeah, I, I, I felt like it could go either way up until mm-hmm. a certain point. And that certain point is at the, in the bus stop scene where mm-hmm. the King Totoro actually takes their father's umbrella. Mm-hmm. Like that's the moment where it's like very clear cut. Okay, it's all... It, it, it's all real. It's all magically real. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure what Miyazaki was trying to uh, say in the moment and if it, if it was real or not, or if I was looking too much into it, but especially when May first sees the forest spirits, the, the little baby Totoro's um, mm-hmm. and goes running around the garden and running into the woods and, and, and goes into a magic portal that they can't access later on. I was very much looking at it as this could be a little girl's imagination. Cause I would do the same thing when I was that age. Sure. That's so interesting. Cause the first time that I saw this movie, I was probably about May's age. Mm. So I just was like, yep. I'm on board for this being real. Absolutely. I would love this to happen to me. In fact, I went through a stage where like, I would look for acorns and magic nuts and seeds in my backyard. (laughs) Yup. So I was always on board for it to be real, but I think it's interesting as an adult, much like Professor Kusakabe and Granny, as an adult, you're thinking, yeah, I saw stuff like that at your age because kids are just more alert to magic. Right. They, uh, The movie definitely highlights that theme that Mm -hmm. childhood innocence correlates to a better understanding of magic. Yeah. And that's a theme that Miyazaki uh, has in a lot of his movies, I feel like. You know, we we mentioned Spirited Away. That's absolutely the same uh, dynamic, I feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's interesting that even among the sisters, May, the youngest one, sees the Totoros first. Right. Satsuki sees them later, but May sees them first. That's a really good point. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of how with Narnia, you age out. Like how you start with the original four Pevensey children, and then Peter and Susan are told they're too old to return to Narnia. Yeah, it's it's kind of the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. The younger you are, the earlier you are adopted into the magic, as it were. Right. Hurry up, May. It's gonna rain. Okay. Are you off to meet your dad at the bus stop? Yes, he forgot his umbrella. So we've talked about the whole thing as magic a lot, but in the movie, it's it's it, they they use the term magic, but it's also very much presented in religious context, in in Japanese Shintoism. Mm -hmm. And that is a very, very important part of this movie, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's the the speech from Professor Kusakabe talking about respecting nature. And there are so many instances in the movie where characters are are praying to the forest spirits to you know, get things or to get protection or in, in the end to find May. And mm-hmm. it's it's very interesting because I don't feel like religion plays a very heavy part in later Ghibli movies, or at least if it Mm-mm. does, I'm not remembering them. 
so to know Mm -hmm. that Totoro is a partially biographic movie and then to watch how they, how Miyazaki handles religion, I was very interested in what that was revealing about his viewpoints. Well, and so the other autobiographical movie by Miyazaki is The Wind Rises by Hiyo Miyazaki is his also semi-autobiographical about his kind of back and forth between a more normal career and imagination and how he kind of like vamped went between the two of do I do animation or do I do flight design sure but that one doesn't mention religion at all either yeah so I don't know I don't know. I don't know if he was trying to say, hey, I'm I'm I believe in Shintoism or if he if he has any preference towards that. I can't tell. I'm not sure either. And I I I didn't do I didn't delve into the subject a whole lot. I didn't try to research Miyazaki's um, religious views or background. But it, it was definitely something that I was chewing on as watching the movie because it keeps coming up later and later and later. Um, a fun fact uh, off the IMDb for this movie, and this is something that I don't know if I would have caught if I hadn't read about it. When May is found, she is sleeping at the feet of a Buddhist statue. And Miyazaki was trying to say, he's, he's quoted in interviews, what he was trying to say there was that she was still safe. She was lost, oh, but she wow. was never in danger. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, because there's been so many um, headcanons put on the internet of, this is actually a story about Totoro being the god of death. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot of really actually kind of disturbing for me because I grew up with this movie, right? Of um, course. There's been a lot of disturbing articles written about how Totoro is actually the god of death, and you only really see him right before you or someone you know dies. And Miyazaki and representatives from Studio Ghibli have come out literally multiple times to say, "No, that's not what happened. That was not our intent behind the movie. Please don't think that about this really lovely film." But so many people have said that that May actually dies in the movie, that when they do pull out the shoe, Satsuki lies and says that it isn't May's as a sort of coping mechanism. And that when she finds May's body later, it's a body, and her and May in the tree are actually her and May's ghosts. The implication being that Satsuki has killed herself. No! Oh my gosh! I know. So um, the internet has done terrible things with this film. Oh, the internet has done multiple terrible <laughs> things. <laughs> oh, no! Uh, I knew exactly where you where that was going the second I, I heard you say that. And mm. <laughs> that's so 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 to go back to the point, though, <laughs> that's an interesting and very dark and depressing conclusion, like logical conclusion to what I was saying earlier about about the Totoro mm-hmm. segments being imaginary. And now I'm, I'm skeeved out and I, I don't like that. I put the first half of that thought into the universe because now it's coming <laughs> back to bite me. Well, and I, I think you're not alone in thinking that this could go either way. I think a lot of things in Miyazaki's work, because it's so magical and because a lot of it is so open to allegory um, presents itself as a ready palette for symbolism. So one of the readings of Spirited Away is that this is Spirited Away is an allegory for child prostitution. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I've I've read that. When you rewatch it, you can see it for maybe the first five minutes. But after that, you're like, okay, but then there's also a giant baby (laughs) that gets turned into a mouse. So what does that mean? And they go underwater on an underwater train and no face is a, is, is clearly a metaphor for Western consumerism. Yeah. So it kind of, there are certain readings of Miyazaki films that I'm just like, no. And I think because I grew up with it, I'm fine with just letting my neighbor Totoro be exactly as presented. 
oh, no, sure. And I mean, sometimes yeah. magic can just be magic. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, I would argue that that's what this movie is stating, that magic is just magic and you don't need to question it. And I think it it sums up really nicely when Mrs. Kusakabe is in the hospital at the very end and she's like, I can't explain it. I don't understand why, but I could have sworn I just saw the our girls in the tree laughing. Right. And that's the last line of the movie. And then we get the My Neighbor Tochiro theme song as the girls are on the bus. Right. No, yeah, and, and that's such a... It's, it's a sweet awe moment. And yeah, that ending theme song is so overtly joyous. I don't know how mm-hmm. you walk out of that with a conspiracy theory being like, no, man, it was really about la 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 la. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some really disturbing art on the internet, so I don't recommend Google searching it unless you really want to. Yeah. So, so while we're talking about depressing aspects of this movie, <laughs> because it wouldn't be a podcast between you and me without it being slightly depressing. Oh, sad day. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, when My Neighbor Totoro was originally released in Japan, it was paired with another animated movie, and that movie is Grave of the Fireflies, which is maybe the saddest movie ever. Like, it's up there. I've never seen it. What's it about? It is about post-World War II Japan and a, a teenage boy and his very baby sister having to survive homelessness and the war-torn landscape. And it is a, it's, it's a look into what Japan was like post-World War II. And it is so sad. So I think it's very funny. (laughs) Wait, so it was released like in a pairing or how? Yeah, pretty much. It was it was a double feature kind of scenario. So, so they would play. Is it also Miyazaki? I don't believe so. I don't believe that Grave of the Fireflies is Studio Ghibli. Is it also an animated yes. movie? Oh, I have never heard of this. Grave of the Fireflies is directed by Isao Takahata. And I hope that's how you say that. <laughs> Sure. Um, And it is described on Wikipedia as an achingly sad anti-war film. It is Studio Ghibli. So there you go. Okay. Oh, Um, no. It is Studio Ghibli. And yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's a critique on World War II and what that does to the, the, the people who weren't soldiers. That, it might wind up on this list, especially now that we're bringing it up. I think it definitely is. It, it, it has a cult uh, status nowadays, but that cult mm-hmm. status is largely based around how it is one of the saddest movies uh, ever. <laughs> think, think of it this. Wow. They paired it with My Neighbor Totoro, so My Neighbor Totoro could be a palate cleanser. That's how sad Grave of the Fireflies is. Well, I'm, I just did a Google image search when you brought it up. And um, yeah, yeah, that's that's all I needed to see. And it's so funny because it the characters don't look too dissimilar from Mei and Satsuki. The younger girl kind of looks like Mei and the older brother kind of looks like the neighbor boy. Yeah, he absolutely does. He's got the little sailor hat. Holy crap. Yeah. Okay, headcanon. Uh-oh. Neighbor boy got neighbor boy got his hat from his grandfather. There you go. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, that works too perfectly. Head cannon accepted. Boom! That is how I have made these two movies connect. There you go. And that's why the neighbor boy is so helpful because he has this family history of oh, this is what happens. Families need to stick together. Oh, what does that mean for Granny? Um, don't worry about it. <laughs> All right. I do want to talk about Granny uh, as a character. I love her. I do too. I grew up wishing my grandparents were were cool like her. <laughs> Not that my grandparents weren't cool. Oh my God. They were just far away. They didn't like live next door or anything. Sure. That's what I meant. Sure, sure, sure. No, I got what you meant. Granny is so interesting to me because we go back to about how, I guess, the 80s were saying whenever this movie took place, it was a safer time than nowadays. You don't see a character like Granny, at least not very often Mm. in Mm -hmm. modern cinema and modern storytelling because she is not related to the family. Like she's, she's a neighbor, but 
she's a neighbor in name only. Mm-hmm. She's so wonderfully sweet. She's so helpful. She is a a strong feminine figure for Mei and Satsuki while they don't have their mom in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Like, she's absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. She's so sweet, and she believes that, like, vegetables will cure the world. Like, right. one of my favorite scenes is she's, like, picking zucchini, and she's like, take these to your mother. They'll help her. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh. My home cooking will cure tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> I can cure all wounds. And you're like, oh my gosh, I love you. But it's such a, a wonderful, she's such a wonderful compliment to the very science-minded Professor Kusakabe because he's like, oh, well, I'm going to, your mom needs to stay in the hospital and she needs modern medicine. And then there's Granny who's saying, just bring her zucchinis and she'll be better. Right. <laughs> so sweet. So sweet. Can we, uh, can we talk about Professor Kusakabe a little bit? Because... Um, oh, I think you mean Professor Kusakabe. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was realizing this might be where I got my like dark hair with glasses thing. I'm like, oh, this might be where it started. That would make a lot of sense. <laughs> like, you know how we had talked the other week about how the mom in Hocus Pocus was kind of the start of you're realizing that women are pretty and boobs are important? Yes. Yes, we did. I think Kus- Professor Kusakabe was the start of my, like, wow, intelligent, educated men with dark hair are attractive. Well, what a what a guy to, to stick your, your expectations off of. I, I, I applaud <laughs> you for that. No, seriously. <laughs> Tiny Stephanie had high standards. So, so everyone should have, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like, and he's such a good dad. He is such a good dad. He's an amazing dad. When you think about like what this man is actually going through. Oh my God. Yeah. Your wife is sick with this disease that is a big enough deal that like she is isolated to the hospital. You're left to care for your two children, your two small children on your own. And mm-hmm. like, re- re- do we know what motivates the move into the country? I feel like they talked about so it. So they kind of allude to it. So the mother who I'm so sorry, we keep calling her the mother. Does she have a name? I don't think so. I actually, I, I actually don't. Let's consult Dr. Internet. Do, 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 do. Ah. Okay. So she does have a name. She does. Yusaku. Yusuko? Yusuko? Yasuko. 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 So what I'm assuming happened from knowledge of tuberculosis, I actually live in a small town that used to be used as a tuberculosis um, healing ground because of the mountain air of where I live. Mm. Um, It's supposed to be really, really good for your lungs. That's why the Vanderbilts moved here. That's why... Ella Fitzgerald moved here, or not Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Zelda Fitzgerald. Anyway, so what I'm assuming happened is that when Yasuko got sick with tuberculosis, they wanted to move her to a mountain hospital where she could get really good clean air because I'm assuming if she lived in one of the major cities, there was too much smoke, too much smog, especially in the 80s and 90s before major clean air acts were made. So they moved out to the mountains. I'm assuming that probably... Tatsu Kusakabe was like, well, I want to move my girls so they're not so far from their mother. Let's move into this house in the country. Right. And I mean, so that just continues to highlight what an amazing guy this is. Like, move your children out of the city where you work. He still works in Tokyo. He has to take the bus every day. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, facilitate a move, which is a stressful situation for anybody. Raise your two daughters on your own, make the money work all while you're, you're the love of your life is sick in the hospital. And, and he still comes out of it as the best smelling like roses, the envy so of sweet. any man watching this movie who says, I want to be like that. <laughs> He's so sweet. And when he talks about like why he picked that house, he picked that house because of the tree in the backyard. Right. Oh, like fanning myself. <laughs> yes, this man is wonderful. Don't worry, May. Satsuki and I believe you. And I bet you I know what happened. You must have met one of the spirits of the forest. That means you're a very lucky girl. God, what a house, right? 
That Such house an is amazing. House. Yeah. So can we talk about the house? Absolutely. Um, it's a real thing. You can actually go to it. Like there's a real house in Japan. So in 2005, Nagoya, Japan hosted the World's Fair and built a huh. real life house that looks just like the one from the movie. Oh, that's it gotta is, be so amazing. It is so cool. Um, my sister, my older sister lived in Nagoya for a couple of years teaching English. And she, um, we went to visit her and she was like, okay, I know that my family loves this movie. I'm going to take them to this house. And it was closed. Oh, no. (laughs) So that's one of the many reasons I'm going to go back to Japan. But apparently, so we saw the outside and it looks exactly like the one in the movie. Um, Miyazaki actually helped design it. He was supervising the whole building process. But on the inside, it's actually filled with stuff. So like you can open the drawers and see Mei and Satsuki's shoes. There's a desk that Satsuki has her schoolwork on. There's um, Professor Kusakabe's office with all his papers and stuff. Mm. And visitors have said that it feels like walking into a friend's home. Yeah, it's gotta be. That's, that's, uh, I Isn't live, that cool? That is so cool. Like, I, I live in Orlando. I've been to Disney plenty of times. There is a, a, uh, a life-sized Swiss Family Robinson treehouse exhibit, but like I've been, <sighs> I've been through that a million times, so it has no wonder for me anymore. Uh-huh. I imagine going and seeing the real-life Kusakabe house would be my way of getting that sense of wonder all over again. I, I, I'm sure that is such a magnificent, popular exhibit. Well, tell you what, if we ever do like a Patreon. And we ever do, like, raise crap tons of money. This could be one of our things that we go for is you and me going to Japan with our spouses and going to the Kusakabe house. I'm about it. And we'll do a video tour and we'll blog about it. And that'll be what you get for your money. (laughs) (laughs) What you get for your money is us going to Japan. Hey! But we're going to talk about it and it'll be amazing. And if you're listening to this and you're enjoying this, then you understand what the power of us talking about a thing could do. (laughs) See? I brought it back. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that's a real thing and we're going to go someday. All right. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Okay. So I would like to talk about the Totoro for a moment. (gasps) The King Totoro. Yes. The big Totoro. Uh, The big, the big Totoro who, who fun fact is the Studio Ghibli mascot. Like, yes. Like this is Studio Ghibli's Mickey Mouse. If you look at pictures of Hio Miyazaki, he kind of looks like Totoro. <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> well, he's got these big, really lovely eyes that kind of smile on their own. And then when he smiles, it takes up his entire face. Aww. So he's, he's basically a Totoro. <laughs> so I, I, I love the Totoro. I don't think you can come out of this movie not loving the Totoro. Mm-hmm. But it bears comment just how ridiculous the Totoro is. <laughs> in what, his girth or in 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 his affectation, in in the way he does things. Because if, if you look what what the Totoro actually does, there's the scene where he is asleep and mm-hmm. cannot be awoken, where he's just a big old big hibernating bear. There is the scene where he uh, is waiting in the rain for the bus and doesn't mm-hmm. understand what an umbrella is. <laughs> and and there are the scenes with the oak tree where he just he he stands there and roars with his giant <laughs> flat non-canine teeth and just stands there and bellows and it's so nonsensical and it's so ridiculous but it's so great at the same time just this this giant like like seven foot tall furry thing just screaming next to you But at the same time, he's also really human. Like in that same uh, bus stop scene, which I maintain is like one of the best scenes in all of animation because there's very little said and but so much said at the same time. There's very few lines of dialogue, but so much is said. 
But there's one point where he's waiting for the bus and he just like scratches his leg with his giant nails. And it just looks like a real person standing there who's just like, uh, scratch, scratch, scratch. Okay, back to waiting politely. <laughs> right. No, I, I, I would agree about that scene. And, you know, the that shot, the movie poster, the shot of a girl holding an umbrella in the rain next to a Totoro, that has become, like, infamous and 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 always copied but never in the same way. That's that's a great scene. That's that's definitely a top 10 scene in all of animation for me. So, fun thing you should bring up the poster. If you look at the movie poster, there's only one girl on it. Right. I was always wondering about that. Cuz originally when before they did much more than the movie poster, um May and Satsuki were one character, and May and Satsuki in Japanese mean the same thing. They both mean the month of May. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So they're basically going to be one character. And then one of the pieces of feedback that the film received is, isn't it kind of lonely to just have one sister hanging out by herself, dealing with the world? Aww. And so then they split it. I'd be very interested to go to the alternate reality where that movie gets made and to see how it changes. I think it wouldn't. I mean, I no, I agree. I don't okay. know if it would work yeah. as well. I wonder because part of what makes the film so magical for me is that it's so much about how sisterhood works and how sisterhood can work in times of grieving and in times where you're scared and how you support each other and how one can show the other so many things and vice versa. Right. That I don't I don't think it would work for me as a movie if it was just one sister. No, I agree. That's that's why I want to see it because yeah. How does the plot change? Yeah. Because for one thing, you don't you don't have the climax of May's missing. So I do know that um, the boy character was going to be a lot. Oh gosh, I keep saying the boy character. He has a name too. I think Kanta. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I grew up watching this movie. I should know that. So I think when the sister. When the sisters weren't a thing and when it was just one child, I think Kanto was supposed to be a bigger deal. Like, it was supposed to be, I think, whichever sister, Satsuki or Mei, re-dis- kind of discovering the Totoro and Kanta being like, are you sure? And kind of playing the more Satsuki role of, oh, this is really magic. Interesting, yeah. Oh. But I'm kind of glad they didn't go with that because then there would be that pressure of oh it's a boy and it's a girl so we're gonna put some romance in it well even more than that there would have been pressure for kanta to save the day and that would have taken a lot of i I feel like there there is something to be said for the agency of a female protagonist and that would have undermined that absolutely absolutely it would have made it much more predictable right and i think the fact that it's two sisters and that the sister you know, they kind of save each other. Yeah. That's so much more powerful. I would argue this movie is like the prequel to Frozen. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last thing I want to say about the Totoro. Um, so there's the scene where May first discovers the King Totoro. And uh-huh. I know this movie is sweet and wonderful and innocent and low stakes and saccharine. But what she literally does is walk up to this big furry creature and stands on his <laughs> stomach and starts poking it like may i love you you're adorable if that's a wolf or a bear or even like a wild dog this is ending very badly and very differently <laughs> aka you're gonna die honey you're gonna lose a hand <laughs> <laughs> very quick right yeah, she's so, um, I think it shows the mark of her as a city girl, is that she's like, oh, oh. here's something fuzzy. I'm gonna touch it. That's... She doesn't, yeah, she doesn't get it. I accept that. That makes a lot of sense. Because when you grow up in the city, you don't encounter big dogs. You don't encounter any kind of animal, really. And so when you move to the country, you're like, what are animals even? I know about dogs. I know about cats. This must be about as harmful as a dog or a cat. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think it's just she is not experienced in country. 
That's a really clever bit of show not tell, I think. I like that mm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, also the fact that, um, like, the girls, when they move into their house, they're stunned by the trees. They don't know what to do. May spends, like, half an hour looking at the tadpoles. Right. Or, um, yeah, tadpoles. She calls them pollywogs. Yeah, there's that. She or, spends an entire day looking at the garden, waiting for it to grow. Yes, exactly. Nothing here. Nothing here. Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I just said she calls them polywogs, and then I realized that she might not in any other dub. So can we talk a bit about the dubs? Yeah, let's go ahead. Okay, so this came out in 1988 in Japan. The first time I saw it, obviously, was in 1993 when it came out into America with the English dub. Sure. And so I grew up with the original dub, like the original American dub with... um, I actually don't... I tried to look, and I couldn't find any information on the original actors anywhere. That is interesting. Because it was probably... It was probably a very low budget. Hey, you're you you're an aspiring voice actor. We're gonna pay you, uh, you know, below minimum to translate this piece so we can put it out. And hey, you get exposure, kid. It was probably one of those deals. You're gonna give me a whole hundred dollars for all of my songs. Where do I sign, Mr. Barry Gordy? It probably was because I've never heard those actors' voices anywhere else, or at least not anywhere else that I'm aware of. But then in 2004, with the Fanning Sisters dub, suddenly you have bigger names on it. And I don't know if it's because I'm biased, because I have a certain way that I feel like the characters should sound, but I was really not a fan of the Fanning Sisters dub. Like, I had heard it, I think, probably halfway through high school, and I was like, this is not my Totoro. This doesn't feel the same to me. The lines are different because the translation is different. That's interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, since this is my first time seeing it, I I didn't have that problem. I actually thought it worked very well, but I don't have the same uh, reference that you do. Well, and I'm I'm sure that half of it is just me being snobby and preferential. I'm (laughs) sure that that's what it is. I'm sure it's like, I'm sure the sisters, the Fanning sisters actually do a fantastic job and I'm just being an ass, but eh, no, shoot your shot. <laughs> if you got an opinion, go for it. <laughs> but I just think that the original is better. There is something about the way that the, the original script, the original English script is written that makes it much more fantastical. But the only exception I will say is that the fantastic Frank Welker is the new Totoro. Right. And that man is amazing. I will listen to that man eat a bowl of cereal. I don't care. Frank Welker is awesome. And if you don't know who Frank Welker is, he's every animal you've ever heard in an animated movie. Pretty much. Yep. He he is. He has one of the largest IMDb credit listings like of of anyone yep. like well, like we're seriously talking maybe a thousand roles because his voice is just he is so all of phenomenal. the lions and lion king <laughs> right <laughs> yeah he's he's basically every animal you've ever heard yeah he's just yeah yeah amazing so that's um my talk about the dubs but also there is a novelization that was written um in 1989 by hio miyazaki and it's beautiful okay yeah i didn't i didn't know there was a novelization at all but to hear there's novelization that's so interesting you would think that it would be a japanese story that he adapted but no this is it's original from miyazaki Mm -hmm. i like that yeah he like wrote the movie and he was like oh this would be a really good book too okay i'm gonna write the book awesome it's Lovely. Oh, I can imagine. I'm gonna have to track it down. Yeah. So that was that's my talk about the dubs. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, I because because I don't even know if you could find those anymore. So so it's it's good to have more than one frame of reference for for something that is so important that it's translated. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Andy, how did you watch the movie? You said you owned it, right? Yes. So a few years back, I uh, got my little brother for Christmas the collected works of Hayao Miyazaki on Blu-ray DVD. Ah, that's a good gift for Davey. Yeah, right? (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, so that, of course, included Totoro. So I had it on DVD. So you just basically went over to Davy's house and you were like, hey, bud, can I borrow this? Pretty much. <laughs> I figure I'll, I'll do a, a rewatch of Princess Mononoke, which is my favorite Studio Ghibli movie <gasps> while I'm at it. And a couple others. That's so fun. That's so fun. I actually had only recently watched that movie probably like two years ago. And I think it's funny to take like a, Ma- a Mononoke fan and show them Totoro. But it's also really fascinating to do the reverse because it was my roommate at the time's favorite Ghibli film. Huh. And he showed it to me and I was like, this is really dark. <laughs> and there's um, a lot of blood. <laughs> this isn't the sweet fantasy setting I'm used to. Oh, what's happened? Oh, that's blood. Oh, that's a beheading. Okay. All right. Uh... Yeah, they're different movies. Yeah, they so are. Let's address that real quick. So so this is like the, the, the point of cult fiction is to review cult movies. And I was watching this and it raised the question to me how much of Miyazaki could be considered cult. Because, you know, mm. anyone who's listened to our, our intro uh, episode zero, uh, you've heard my thoughts that there are certain things that cult movies can't do. Cult movies can't have uh, critical acclaim. Cult movies can't have commercial success. Princess Mononoke won an Oscar. Spirited Away won, uh, won an Oscar. So I, I don't know where to land on this. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to say, oh, we should review Princess Mononoke for this podcast, but I, I don't know that we can. Right. And mm. if we add Ghibli, Sorry, that's going to add about 11 movies to our extensive list. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think let's put a bigger dent in that before we add more Ghibli movies. But I also think we're even pushing it with this one. Really? Um, okay. While I will agree, absolutely. This is cult because it never, when it, when it premiered, it was not a big deal at all. It certainly is not the huge production that it is now. Like Alex, my husband and I went to um, Epcot before we moved to North Carolina. So like three or four years ago. And in Japan, in the merchandise store for Japan, it's just shoved with Ghibli things. So now, now you can't not find My Neighbor Totoro purses and bags and wallets and mittens and hats and one of my friends has a Totoro onesie and I want <laughs> it. A pajama onesie not like a baby onesie? That would be really weird. Oh, Sorry. You, you got Just the baby Totoro. St- you can, oh, a baby and a baby Totoro onesie would be so cute. <gasps> oh my gosh. Don't even joke. I met my friend's small, small infant today. She's probably four months old and Alex and I walked away and I was like, I want 17 kids. And he's like, interesting, because last week you were saying that you never want kids ever. And I was like, but but that baby was so cute. I want 17. And he's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. But anyway, that aside, I don't know that Totoro is cult because it's so popular. But at the same time, cult fiction is popular. Like cult movies are popular because it's it's cult and you've never heard of it, but these like underground group of people have. Right. So I don't know. Well, personally, you know, obviously all the movies we are going to watch on this project, we at least feel to be cult, but I think it is important to examine something after the fact, after it's fresh in our minds and ask ourselves, is this cult? And for me personally, uh, Totoro is absolutely cult despite your point about its popularity because yeah you know we talked about when this first came out in japanese theaters it was paired with another movie i made a joke about how that was Mm -hmm. to like keep kids from crying and keep adults from crying over grave of the fireflies but the actual reason is because studios were so afraid that my neighbor totoro was going to be a flop that they thought they had to pair it with another movie just so that like between the two of them that would be the reason to sell a ticket they they thought that my neighbor totoro on its own would not be enough of a draw to be a financial success and it wasn't a financial success until 20 years later i mean i i think the the english dub probably did a lot for it in the the global scale because I, I guess American yeah. audiences were more willing to accept what was being presented as as wonderful and amazing and and worthy of. 
being cinema. But beyond that, like the Japanese um, film commission did not include Totoro as eligible for an award the year it came out. You know, basically the Japanese version of the Oscars were like, no, that's, that's not even worthy of consideration for best animated picture. And, you know, fast forward even 10 years and uh, Miyazaki is winning American Oscars for his movies. So I think this, this flew so far under everyone's radar, both critically and commercially. And then take that to where it is now where Totoro is the mascot and we're sitting here talking about all these wonderful childhood memories. We're talking about how you, you, you can't go to the Japan store in Epcot without tripping over something Totoro. It, it is a cult classic underline the classic in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah. I guess I didn't know how badly it bombed when it was first released. And I guess I, I see it's ever, it's ever presence now as like, Oh, it's always been that way. But I do remember growing up saying to people, oh, this is like as a small child thing, it was my favorite movie. And being really excited when I met a friend who knew what it was because it was a big deal that she knew what it was because none of my other friends had ever said, oh yeah, I know what that is. And to be fair, that friend had just gone through a stint of living in Japan because her dad was in the army and that's where he was stationed. Oh, okay. So she like was involved in Japanese culture and knew that it was a thing. But I don't think any of my American friends knew what it was until like the 2005 dub. Well, to, to get briefly off topic for a moment, it is funny. Like we're old enough that we can remember a time before anime, (laughs) like, like Pokemon became a big thing on TV after I was like in first grade. So so my, my mm-hmm. deep childhood, everything before that, like you just, you didn't know what it is. And, and nowadays it's completely gone the opposite way where it's such a dominant art form and part of the entertainment culture. And I think that's another part of why Totoro has successfully lived on because it's an older offering yeah. that all of these anime fans could then discover as a classic and show their kids. So what you're saying is I can be an anime hipster and be like, oh, I knew about My Neighbor Totoro before it was cool. What I'm saying is now I really want you to have a shirt that says <laughs> anime hipster <laughs> and a picture of the Totoro. <laughs> Our first Patreon goal. Oh, done. Yes. Book it. <laughs> awesome. Or just, you know, my Christmas present, huh. Andrew. Just hey, if it exists, you're getting it. If it doesn't <laughs> exist, we're making it. Done. <laughs> oh, you're sweet. I was joking, but you're sweet. <laughs> All right. So now is the part of the program where I would like to play a game with you, Stephanie. Yay! Is it our favorite game? It's one of my favorite games and one of yours, too, I believe. I would like to play mm-hmm. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Okay, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah, let's go first. We want to do this with every movie. Um, For anyone who's unfamiliar with Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, it is a game, but it is also sort of a thought concept that proposes you can match any actor to Kevin Bacon in six moves or less. Hence, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. watching this, I was thinking about playing the game and... I really wanted to try and do the Japanese dub because I think that adds such a, <laughs> a, a insane degree of difficulty. Uh, listeners at home, uh-huh. consider that nightmare mode. And if you want to go ahead and play it, be my guest. For now, let's just stick with the American version. So mm-hmm. uh, I went Dakota Fanning is in My Neighbor Totoro. Dakota Fanning is uh-huh. in I Am Sam with Sean Penn, who is in Mystic River with mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon. So two moves. Okay. That's pretty good. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, except Dakota Fanning was in Trapped with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> One move! <laughs> uh, so point for you. She was kidnapped by Kevin Bacon. Point for you, I guess, and I'm going to start keeping track now. <laughs> <laughs> I should go fully on the record and say that my husband, who is basically a walking encyclopedia, helped with this. So 
Yeah, it's gonna be tough to beat the two of you, but I'm up to the challenge. You're very sweet. <laughs> I will I will applaud any attempt that you win. I believe in you, bud. You can do it. I'll take it. <laughs> Woo! Yay. All right, do you want to give away our Oscars? Yeah, so the other thing uh, we want to do for every movie is give out our own personal Oscars. And this is based off the... Uh, my idea that a cult movie, part of what makes it cult is that it is ignored by the Oscars in its time and not properly appreciated. <laughs> and we would like to help offset that by giving out our own Oscars. So without any further ado, My Neighbor Totoro gets my Oscar for Best Dad in All of Cinema. <laughs> like, <sighs> we talked about him extensively, but Tatsuo Kuzakabe is the peak like i can't think of another dad animated or live action who who goes through what he goes through and handles it as remarkably well as him he he is he is a perfect mm. father figure he is definitely a bay. <laughs> mm. hashtag dad goals hashtag dad goals all around so he gets my oscar mm-hmm. and my eternal like like i'm i'm gonna be on the lookout for a better dad in cinema but i don't think we're gonna find one i don't think you're gonna find one either is this gonna be when you become a dad you're gonna be like you're gonna have a t-shirt or like a a memento somewhere that's like just be like professor kusaka it's gonna go over my door (laughs) so i can like 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 every day as i go to work and take the bus to uh tokyo i can i can hold on to that oh shit when are you moving to tokyo I don't know, but i'm looking forward to it <laughs> sweet what about you all right my oscar for this movie goes to the world i most want to live in yeah i would like to live in totoro land i just i just want to i never they never really say where in japan this is located but I want to move to a place with big, fluffy white clouds and giant camphor trees and... And the food and, like, <sighs> like fresh fresh oh garden God. vegetables. You know, there's, there's a thing about Ghibli food being, like, the tastiest-looking food in, in all of mm. animation, and it's absolutely on the nose. It's absolutely right. Yes. There are bento boxes that they're making at one point in the movie. I'm like, oh, my God. I... I don't eat a lot of sushi, and yet that looks delicious. (laughs) I would like to put it all in my mouth, please. Yes, absolutely. So, I feel like this is a redundant question, but Stephanie, did you like My Neighbor Totoro? I love this movie so much. I do. Yes. Andrew, did you? This is your first time. Did you like My Neighbor Totoro? I I really did. You know, there's something to be said. I, I talked about it at the start of the episode. It is so soft. It's it's like being bundled up in a, a nice fleece jacket and going out into the snow. But it's like really nice, soft, powdery snow. So you know, even if you fall down, you're going to be safe. Oh, <laughs> I love that analogy so much. Yeah, it's it's a delightful movie. It's It's a great experiment that you don't need high conflict to make something enjoyable and and no Mm. i absolutely very much like this movie oh good yeah good because if you didn't like it i'm pretty sure this podcast would end at episode one right and just be like well that was a pointless uh pointless exercise (laughs) i'll be very interested when we have a disagreement about a movie but it's not gonna be over (laughs) it'll probably be anaconda It'll probably be Anaconda. <laughs> I live in fear of that day. Well, so so here's what we'd like to do, listeners. I'm a fan of... I'm a believer that all cinema has a chance to be good, or at least so bad that it's good. And as such, we have no actual structure to how we are going to like we have no other movie in mind is what i mean to say right it's randomized yeah yeah it's going to be we're going to be picking movies at random out of a list that i have uh created here so we have a grand total of 293 movies on my i on my big list Um, good lord at least we know our project is sustainable. Right? <laughs> and I could add more. So what we're going to do is we're going to let the the Hollywood Crypt Keeper, a.k.a. my random number generator, decide <laughs> what we are going to subject ourselves next. And so there is a 
293rd of a chance that it is Anaconda. Come on, Wheel. Come on, not Anaconda. No whammies, no whammies, no whammies. We have rolled 263. And on our okay. list, 263 is... 263 is a very cult movie. What is 263? So 263 is The Toxic Avenger. It is a Ooh. 1984 superhero, and I use that term somewhat loosely, uh, film directed by Michael Hertz. And this movie was so cult that it had a uh, Saturday morning cartoon show in the same vein as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Street Sharks made about it. Yes. All right. Toxic Avenger. Where is that available? Yes, thank you. Okay. Um, so, funnily enough, Toxic Avenger is actually available for free on YouTube. Uh, Perfect. And, yeah, you should be able to just find it there. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, we've got our, our second episode lined up. I'm very excited. How are you feeling? I'm feeling very excited. Good, good. good I'm ready good. to watch some Toxic Avengers. All right. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. We'll let our crypt creep closed for now. But join us next time when we tie bedsheets around our shoulders and pretend to be superheroes as we review The Toxic Avenger.